2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and uh, we're looking from verse 3 down to verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter uh, 2, verse 3 down to verse 10, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 down to verse 10. Paul writes, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also uh, strive for masteries, yet he is, is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, of the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. One of the biggest boxing matches of the last century took place on November 25th, 1980, between Sugar Ray Leonard and Roberto Duran. Duran had won the previous fight, and he was the favorite the second time around. In fact, he had a record of 72 wins and just one loss, which is really a remarkable record for any boxer. He had won his last 41 fights when he came into the ring on this occasion. And the rematch was, to some degree, a close fight. There was only a few points separating the two fighters on the judges' scorecards. But if you watch a video of this fight, you will see that Sugar Ray Leonard became increasingly confident, and he became very cocky, and he began to humiliate Roberto Duran during the, during the uh, fight. For example, he began to swing his right arm round and round and round, and then he punched him with his left, and uh, he was kind of humiliating him and, and mocking him as the champion he was. And then out of nowhere, Roberto Duran turned around and he basically held up his fists as, as if to signal he was surrendering, and he said to the referee, no mas, no more. And at that moment, he not only quit on the fight, but he quit on boxing. Now, he wasn't injured, he wasn't cut, he was uh, frustrated by the antics of Roberto Duran. He felt that he had been disrespectful to him and that he had had enough of it. So here was a fighter who was one of the best ever to enter a boxing ring, a man who was voted as the fifth greatest fighter of the last 80 years, who won 103 fights. But when anybody mentions his name in the world of sport, the first thing that comes to mind about Roberto Duran is not that he was this superb boxing champion, but that people remember he held up his fist and cried, no mas, no more. People remember the day that Roberto Duran quit. Now we've all had times when we felt like quitting, haven't we? Quitting your job, 
quitting in uh, your ministry perhaps here at church, quitting on your marriage, quitting on church, uh, quitting in so many ways. Some people even quit on God. They say, well, that's it. I'm not going to serve God anymore. And even some of the greatest heroes of the Bible, there came moments when they thought about giving up. Moses said, whence should I have flesh to give unto all this people? For they weep unto me, saying, give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And if thy deal thus with me, kill me, I pray thee, out of hand. What a, what a prayer request. He said, I quit, Lord. He said, I can't feed all these people. You just go ahead and kill me. Kill me out of hand. Take me home. Let me get out of this. Elijah said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah was quitting that day under the threat and intimidation of Queen Jezebel. Job cursed his birthday, as did Jeremiah, who said, Cursed be the day wherein I was born. Let not that day wherein my mother bare me be blessed. You see, Jeremiah said, No mass. I want to say, No more. I quit. And yet these men overcame the temptation to quit ultimately, and all of them went on to serve God faithfully. Now, last Sunday morning, we focused on one word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, or chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, the word unashamed, or the word ashamed. And we saw that this word is recurrent throughout the book. But now I want to focus on a different word, and you may have picked it up in our reading, and that's the word endure. We want to speak today about endurance. Endurance means to stick at it to stay the course, to uh, keep going, not to quit. If you look in verse 3 of our reading this morning, uh, Paul tells Timothy, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Uh, in verse 10 he says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's uh, sake. Uh, if you look further down uh, the passage into uh, chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul says, persecutions, afflictions which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, but out of them the Lord delivered me. Chapter 4 and verse 3 says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And in verse 5, but watch thou in all things endure afflictions. So last week we saw how that Paul called upon Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor indeed of Paul as the prisoner of the Lord, but he exhorts him to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. And so now in this chapter he says, if you're going to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, well, Timothy, you're going to have to endure. You're going to have to put up with some things. You're going to have to suffer a little bit. You're going to have to toughen up. You're going to have to dig in. You're going to have to harden up. You're going to have to resist the temptation to give up and go on until Jesus comes or the Lord calls you home. Now, that's what the Christian life in, is in, uh, involves. It involves endurance. Nobody ever said it was going to be easy, did they? And if they did tell you it was going to be easy, well, to be honest, they lied to you. It was never going to be easy. It was always going to be a tough call. Now, Paul was reminding Timothy of the necessity of endurance 
And this morning I want to remind you by extension of the same thing. So when it comes to endurance, Timothy is reminded of five great truths. Number one, he's reminded he must suffer hardship. Number two, he's reminded he must separate from the world. Number three, he's told to strive lawfully. Fourthly, he's instructed to stay at the task. And fifthly, he's told he needs to see Jesus. Well, let's think about each of these in turn this morning, beginning in verse 3, with that commandment, Thou therefore endure a hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, Timothy is told to endure hardness. Boys, it dear. There, there was a time when people used to teach their children that, their boys that, didn't they? You know, stop crying, son. Toughen up. You know, now, find yourself a safe place. You go into your little safe place. Oh dear, oh dear, what have we become? The Bible says, endure hardness. Hardness relates to circumstances that are beyond human control. You know, things happen that you have no control over, that I have no control over. Uh, sickness, pandemics, uh, death, redundancy, marital breakdown, political decisions that have a major impact upon your life. These things we have no control over, do we? I mean, the, the Prime Minister says just last week, well, we're going to carry on for another four weeks of restrictions. We have no control over that, do we? It's not like he asked us for a vote on it. It's not like he put it on his manifesto when he was coming into power because even he didn't have control over the circumstances that befell him and his government. So things happen that are beyond the realm of nature, or beyond the realm of our control, that are perhaps in the realm of nature or are in the area of other people's governmentship. And so what you have to do is you have to endure. You have to endure. Now the anal analogy that Paul paints here is that of a soldier. A soldier on the field of battle, when you think about it, he doesn't know what's coming next, does he? I mean, he's in the heat of battle. He may think that the, that the battle is over. There may be a, a short reprieve in, in crossfire. He may think the battle is over, and then before he knows it, the enemy is reinforced. And they're coming at him a second time. Or he may feel he's making an advance. He's, he and his colleagues are getting somewhere when suddenly there is, uh, there's air fire coming at them. The enemy brings in uh, air cover and, and they find themselves under the attack from aircraft above. You know, he just has to get on with whatever the battle throws at him. You know, when you're saved, that's how it is in the Christian life. You sign up to the Lord's army and when you sign up to the Lord's army, you should expect battles. You know, it's not going to be easy. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. That's what he's telling us. You know, a Christian without affliction is only like a soldier on parade. You think about a soldier on parade. He's all dressed up. His shoes are shined up. His hair is groomed. His uh, uniform is pristine. His buttons are gleaming. His trousers are pressed to, uh, to a knife edge almost. And, and, and uh, that's how he looks. He looks very impressive. But on the battlefield, <laughs> well, he looks a little different, doesn't he? He's in his fatigues. His khakis, he's, he's covered in mud and dirt and possibly blood. He's not looking like that pristine guard that you see standing outside the sentry box at Buckingham Palace. He's an altogether different character. And so Paul here speaks to Timothy 
as a superior officer might speak to an underling and he tells him to endure. And this word has a military tone to it. This verse has a military tone to it. Uh, Kenneth Wiest, the great uh, Greek scholar, says this. It has a sharp command uh, that is given with military snap and curtness. So, uh, you know, an officer on the field doesn't say to his soldiers, you know, I'd appreciate it if you'd stand to attention. It would make my day (laughs) if you would listen to me. (laughs) He doesn't do that, does he? He just barks his orders. And he expects obedience. And that's what Paul is doing with Timothy. So, Huist says that this is a sharp command given with military snap and curtness. And then he says this, What softies we sometimes are, afraid to come out clearly in our proclamation of the truth, and our stand as to false doctrine, fearing the ostracism of our fellows, the ecclesiastical displeasure of our superiors, or the cutting off of our immediate financial income. I would rather walk a lonely road with Jesus than be without his fellowship in the crowd, wouldn't you? Well, I hope you would. But you know, I think he's right. I think the modern church has gone soft. I think we have become a bunch of softies that are afraid to stand up for Jesus. That's what our forefathers sang. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. And that's exactly what they meant, wasn't it? They meant you to stand for Jesus. They meant you to have a degree of militancy uh, concerning him. You know, here are Christians today, and they're ready to quit at the slightest little thing. Ready to throw throw in the tile. Raise the flag of surrender. Say, that's enough for me. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm going to go back to where where I was. We've got a bunch of softies. Listen, the call of Christ is the way of the cross. Look at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem. And suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Notice what he's talking about. He's talking about his death, his burial, his resurrection. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God but those that be of men. That's what he's, he's telling uh, Peter exactly what Paul told Timothy. He says, Peter, you're looking for a life of ease. But that's not the way this thing works. Then he says to his disciples in verse 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall find it. You see, he says, take up your cross. Now, the cross isn't a tickling stick. It isn't there as a back scratcher. The cross is an implement of death. It's an implement of torture. It's an implement of hardship, of suffering. So what the Lord was saying to these disciples was this. Listen, I'm going to go to the cross. 
I'm going to Jerusalem now. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be buried. I will rise again the third day. But you've got to understand that the servant is not greater than his master and that you also need to take up your cross, that you're going to have to bear my cross, that you're going to have to suffer to some degree. You're going to have to go through struggles and difficulties and trials. See, the Lord was completely honest with them. He told his disciples, just as Paul told Timothy, that you have to endure hardness. Not only was he called upon to suffer hardship, but notice Timothy was told that he must separate from the world in verse 4 of 2 Timothy and chapter 2. Paul writes, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Now, you know, in ancient times, they didn't have professional armies largely like we know today. There were no standing armies. Uh, basically, the armies were those men who were summoned from their ordinary jobs and called into battle when battles arose. And when that call came, well, the plow was left in the furrow, and the cloth was left in the loom, and the bridegroom uh, left his bride, and the mourner left the graveside, and all of the, uh, all of the home industries and cottage industries were paralyzed while the men went off to war. Everything was left aside in order to go and fight the battle. And so it is in the spiritual warfare. You can't be hampered by the things of this world. You know, shortly after joining the Navy, a new recruit came and he asked his officer for a pass that he might attend a wedding. And he was granted the pass. But his officer said to him, now listen, you can go to that wedding, but I want you back on this ship for 7 p.m. Saturday night. He says, you don't understand, sir. I'm in the wedding. To which the officer replied, you don't understand, son. You're in the Navy. <laughs> and that's the way it is. You're in the army. You've joined the Lord's army. And so the word entangle here means to weave. You know, when you're not to get tied up in the things of this life if we're to be serious about facing the battle. You know, I remember when we were kids, I'm sure you remember this. I'm sure they still do this in primary school. I hope they do. But on sports day, they always had three-legged races. Remember three-legged races? Now, honestly, who liked three-legged races? I hated three-legged races. Hated them. Uh, you know, you always got tied up with somebody either who's too, shorter than you or taller than you, heavier than you, faster than you, slower than you. And as soon as they said go, what happened? You fell on your face, didn't you? And then you had to get up and try and figure out some rhythm between you and this other character to try and get across the uh, finish line. Well, what's the problem there? The problem is you're entangled. You're tied up with somebody else. And so that impedes your progress. It makes it difficult for you. You know, imagine for a moment a soldier on the eve of battle going to his sergeant saying, Now listen, sir, you know, I know we're going into battle in the morning, but uh, I'm going to have to leave now because I've got some business to attend to. And uh, I'll tell you something else. I'll be out all night because I've got this young woman that I've met and I'm taking her out for a meal and we're going to the cinema afterwards. If you don't mind, uh, I'll be back maybe in the morning and um, perhaps I can join the battle. That's not going to happen, is it? It's not going to happen. But many Christians are trying to fight that way today. The Lord and the things of the Lord are being asked to take a back seat to the things that I need to attend to, to my business, to my desires, to my wishes, to, to the things I wish to engage in. And so we're asking the Lord to take a back seat uh, whilst the battle should be advancing. In his book, Your Money Matters, Malcolm McGregor tells of a man who'd gone into business for himself who came to him for counsel. 
He writes this. A tremendous opportunity had come along. Once he got, his, got this business established, he was going to have a lot of time available to minister to the church and help others. He had excitedly told his family that he had found an opportunity to be his own boss and to have the freedom he wanted. They must understand that for a short period of time, he was going to have to pour a lot of work and time into getting the business started. But after that, he would have a lot of extra time. He would be able to help out at church, perhaps be involved in children's work, and then they would do things together as a family. So the first thing he did was to resign his position on the church council because the council met on Saturday and there, that was one day that he had to work. But as soon as he got the business started, he would be back. Business was going well, but he, but he was not going to the midweek service anymore because that was a night in which he had to catch up with his paperwork. Then he quit teaching Sunday school because he didn't have time to prepare his lesson. Next, he stopped coming on Sunday evenings. Then a crisis set in. He was not in church on Sunday morning for six, eight, ten weeks. And now sitting across the desk from McGregor, his business was destroyed and he was facing bankruptcy. He asked, why would God put me into this business just to see it fail? Now before we sit in judgment of that man, let's admit that it's very easy to drift into that kind of situation. But if anything... Even your family comes before seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is wrongful entanglement. Thomas Guthrie, the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland in the middle of the 19th century, said this. If you find yourself loving any pleasure better than your prayers, any book better than the Bible, any house better than the house of God, any table better than the Lord's table, any person better than Christ, any indulgence better than the hope of heaven, Take alarm. Now listen, we're called to be soldiers, to endure hardness, and to please Christ. That is our first duty. We're to please him with consecrated service. You know, once a man is enlisted on the campaign, he can no longer involve himself in the ordinary daily business of life and living. He must concentrate on his service as a soldier. He, we must also please him with obedient service. You know, the early training of a soldier is designed to teach him to obey. That boot camp that he goes to is purpose to teach him to jump to commandments, to do what he is told and to do it unquestioningly. That, no, there may come a time when such instinctive obedience might save his life or may, might indeed save the life of somebody else around him. The soldier's mantra is, ours is not to know the reason why, ours is just to do and die. If we're going to please the Lord, then we're going to have to do it with sacrificial service. World War I, there was a chaplain by the name of A.J. Gossip who was going up the line for the first time. And war and blood and wounds were, and death were all new to him. And on his way, he saw by the roadside, left behind after battle, the body of a young kilted highlander. Oddly, perhaps, there flashed into his mind the words of Christ, this is my body broken for you. But the Christian must ever be ready to sacrifice himself, sacrifice his wishes, sacrifice his fortune for God and for his fellow men. And we're to please him with loyal service. Again, someone records a conversation from World War I where Marshal Falk and his uh, officer were discussing uh, the battle ahead. And he said to him, you must not retire. You must hold on at all costs. Then said the officer aghast, that means we must all die. To which Falk replied, 
precisely. Sometimes the soldier is just called upon to die, to hold the ground. And so the soldier's supreme virtue is that he is faithful unto death. So we're to please him with courageous service. What did the Lord Jesus say to the suffering church at Smyrna? He didn't say, here's a safe place for you. He didn't say, there's a safe room you can go into. He said this, be thy faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That's endurance. Then notice in verse 5 of our text, he must strive lawfully. He says, Live a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Now, he's changed the picture. Paul has now moved from the image of a soldier, and he's going into the sphere of athletics, and he's picturing the, the Christian servant as, a, as an athlete, as a runner. You know, next month the Olympic Games are due to begin in Tokyo, in Japan, and the athletes from all over the world who have been sacrificing for the last four or five years uh, are preparing to go out onto the track and field and wherever else and to compete in the hope that they might secure a gold medal. Now, the Christian life is no different. The Christian life is a race, but it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And in a marathon, you have to pace yourself. And in a marathon, you have to endure. In any long-distance race, endurance is the key. You know, you watch, if you get a chance to, to see the marathon runners in the Olympic Games, and uh, they won't be the kind of guys that you see out on the streets here who are running around dressed as teddy bears uh, for charity. Uh, these are serious athletes. And uh, you'll watch as they get up to that 20th, 21st, 22nd, you'll watch the agony on their face. And it's all about endurance till they push through that finishing line. Look what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul makes this same parallel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24, and he says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Not everybody can win the race. He says, So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. He's controlled. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body, and I bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now notice what he says there in verse 26, I run not as uncertainly. What does that mean? It means he runs with his eye on the finishing line. He's running with a fixed goal in mind. He says, I fight, not as one that beats the air. He's not a shadow boxer. He wants to hurt the enemy. He doesn't want to just stand there, you know, playing around with it. He wants to actually get into the fight. He wants to do damage to the devil and to the devil's ground. You know, I like how the old preacher Ray Steadman put it. He said, every athlete learns that he has to deny himself certain things if he wants to win. He cannot eat just any kind of food. He has to give up chocolate sundaes, strawberry shortcake, and all the rich, luxurious indulgences that others can freely have. He may have to sit and eat cardboard while others enjoy something else, but he does it. 
The athlete does not indulge in certain pleasures. He does not go in for late nights, wild living, revelings, carousing, and drunkenness that others may go in for. He resolutely predetermines that he is not going to involve himself in those, so that when the occasion arises, he says no. He does not indulge in certain vices. He gives up smoking and drinking because it hurts and harms the body. The athlete does so because he wants to win. That is the point. He wants to be crowned. Did you see this week that uh, Cristiano Ronaldo was being interviewed and there were two bottles of Coca-Cola sitting on the desk and in front of him and he removed those fizzy drinks and he said, drink water, it's better for you. <laughs> That's an athlete's name, okay? Uh, you know, if, if you try that with your kids in a restaurant, you'll find that they ne won't necessarily agree with Ronaldo, okay? They prefer the fizzy drink most times. Uh, but he has an athlete's mind. Now, Stedman goes on and says this, These crowns are not something we earn by our faithfulness. Rather, they represent a test that reveals whether we really are athletes for Christ or not. They represent a proper goal in our life. We do not want to lose out on what God has for us. We want to achieve all that he has made available, so we are ready to say no to many things in order to gain that. A Christian is called to say no to many things today. There are visual stimuli on every side that tempt us to give in, to indulge ourselves, to seize hold of life, to enjoy it now. But a Christian soldier, an athlete, has to say, no, I won't do it. Those things lead to distraction, to disruption, and to a lessening of spiritual intensity in my life. I won't do them. That is the discipline of an athlete. And that's you and I. You know, we may look at our bodies in the morning and think we don't look much like athletes. <laughs> But the Bible says we're athletes. They were in a spiritual race. J. Vernon McGee says this, the only exercise some Christians get is jumping to conclusions, running down their friends, sidestepping responsibility, and pushing their luck. <laughs> He's probably right. But there's a crown to be won. Several crowns, actually. We've already touched on some of them. The crown of life. The incorruptible crown. The crown of righteousness. The crown of glory. The crown of rejoicing. These are crowns that are being held out in eternity for those who will faithfully run the race. To win those crowns, a Christian athlete, like any athlete, must also play by the rules. That's what Paul says here. He must strive lawfully. Now, it's interesting. In the ancient Greek games, which, of course, are the forerunner to the modern Olympic Games, these rules included requirements for training as well as for the competition itself. So every competitor had to fulfill three qualifications. He had to meet three qualifications. First of all, uh, he had to be a true-born Greek. Uh, so unlike the modern Olympic Games, which call in athletes from all over the world, you had to be born in Greece to take part in the ancient Greek games. And you had to produce a Greek birth certificate before they'd let you run. Then secondly, all Greek athletes had to train for 10 months prior to the actual competition. The training period involved rigid prescribed exercises that caused the athlete to live a very strict separated life in regard to the ordinary and lawful pursuits of life and he also had to follow a very rigid diet. At the end of the 10 months the athlete would be asked to swear before Zeus that he had kept faithfully all of these requirements and if he had not he was disqualified from the race. 
And then finally, he had to complete, of course, the particular competition within the specific rules of that event. Now, should the athlete break any of those rules, he was barred. He simply didn't run. There was no chance of him getting a crown. And the picture, as far as Timothy is concerned, is clear. Paul says to him, look, if you're going to win the race, if a man's going to strive for masteries, that's the, that's the old English language for uh, athleticism, he says if you're going to strive to be a, a top athlete, that yet you're not going to be crowned unless you do it lawfully. And Timothy would have understood the implication of that to the Christian life. He would have understood that all who would run the race must first of all be true-born Christians. You see, you're not even in the race until you're born again. You're not even on the starting line until you know the Lord Jesus is your Savior. You're in no place to get a crown unless you come to Christ and have trusted in Him. Then secondly, we must exercise self-control and endurance. The Greek athlete had 10 months of preparation, which actually seems a rather short time now in comparison to the modern athlete. But nevertheless, it was 10 months of complete separation from the normal everyday things. So the Christian too must separate from the world. He must exercise self-control. He must exercise endurance. And then thirdly, the athlete had to keep the rules of the specific event in which he was entered. And so you and I have to keep to the regulations and to the commandments of God's Word. We've got to strive lawfully. Then he tells him in verse 6 that he must stay at the task. Notice verse 6. He says, The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Now again, there's another old English word for us. Husbandman, a rather antiquated term for a farmer. So he spoke to us about a soldier. He spoke to us about an athlete. And now he talks to us about a farmer. Now, a farmer is also a figure of endurance when you think about it. But, uh, of course, being a farmer and a hard-working farmer is not as glamorous as being a soldier or being an athlete. You know, I was a little boy, and some people say to you, what do you want to be when you grow up? It wasn't unusual to hear little boys say, I want to be a soldier. Or they would say, I want to be a footballer or some other area of sports, usually football. So nobody I grew up with ever said, I want to be a farmer. It's not as glamorous, is it? Being a farmer. Being a farmer is hard work. And so the farmer himself wants to be the first to enjoy the fruit of his labor. He wants to be able to one, the one to go out and enjoy the first fruits of his harvest. And yet to do that, he must stick at it. He must stay at the task because farming life isn't easy, is it? You know, uh, we see the farmer at this time of year, and maybe you're driving down the road someday, you're out in the country and you're enjoying the countryside, you're driving down the road and there's the farmer on his tractor in front of you and he's bouncing up and down on the road, and you're thinking, he has a life O'Reilly, that guy. Look at this beautiful place he lives. You know, Hayes and I went for a little walk yesterday out at Waterhouses, and I uh, walked up through this uh, public uh, foot, footpath, footway, and I ended up walking across farmers' fields, right through the middle of their fields. And the farmer was out there, and he was rounding up his sheep, he and his grandson and his son, and they were rounding up hundreds of sheep, and they were, the, the sheep were, were all running into the field we were in. And it was just idyllic. You looked at it and you thought, what a, what a life, you know. What a lovely, lovely life. But come back in mid-January... And come back when there's howling winds and driving rain. Come back when the fields are full of mud, 
Not when they're full of summer flowers and, uh, and, uh, and the beauty of the green countryside. Uh, come back when it's an icy, cold, frosty morning and it's six o'clock in the morning and that farmer's heading out for the day to begin his day's work. Come back and witness him working from dawn till dusk every day of his life and falling into his bed absolutely exhausted at the end of the day knowing that he's got to be up before dawn the next day to do it all over again. You know those lonely hours speak to us of toil and they speak to us of endurance. The word laboreth there is interesting. It's a Greek word that, that in the secular Greek that refers to a beating. The husbandman, the farmer that takes a beating is literally what it says. Every day of his life he takes a beating. You know, his face is weathered from taking a beating, as it were. Uh, there's a weariness uh, to this particular vocation. There's an exertion. And again, if somebody told you that the Christian life was anything less than that, well, you were sold a pup. Somebody, somebody sucked you in. Because the Lord Jesus was completely open about the uh, commitment to discipleship, as indeed was the Apostle Paul. Completely open. So if, if you're going to enjoy the fruit of your Christian life, here's the deal. You have to stick at it no matter what happens, whatever the weather, whatever life throws at you, whatever the cost. Whatever, whatever circumstance that's beyond your control comes your way that you can do nothing about. You just have to endure it till you get to the end. And then finally, he says in verses 7 through 10 that he must see Jesus. He says, consider what I say. Have a think about these things. Think about the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. And the Lord give the understanding in all things. He says, think about all of those men. But remember this. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds that the word of God be not bound. Uh, therefore, sorry, the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And the reason that Paul gives that he's enduring trials, the reason he gives that he's sticking at the task, even being in imprisoned and prepared to be put to death by Nero is that he's focused on the things that the Lord Jesus has done for him. And he has gratitude for the ministry and salvation of Christ in his life. If you're going to endure this Christian life, here's the key to success. You keep your eyes on Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1 says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Now chapter 11 goes through all the great heroes of the faith going all the way back to the beginning. And the writer says, Seeing we are compassed about with all of these great examples, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For considering him that, what? 
endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind, lest you do not endure, ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. So think about Jesus. Think about his endurance. Think about his commitment to the salvation of your soul. Think about what he went through to get you and I out of hell and into heaven. I think what he went through to get us into the family of God, to translate us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Think about what he endured, how he was maligned, how he was vilified, how he was falsely accused, how he was brutally mistreated, how he was abandoned by all of his friends, how he was condemned unjustly to the cross, how he was forsaken as the substitute of sinners by his own father. Consider him. He endured all all of that and more that we might be saved. You see, he never gave up. He never, never gave in. He never surrendered. He never said, that's it, I'm done. He never held up the white flag. He never called 12,000 angels. He didn't step down from the cross. He could, have, he could have got out of that situation at any moment, but he stayed on the course until his work was done, until he was able to cry, it is finished. And his work was complete. Now, if you're finding life is tough for you right now, the writer of Hebrews reminds you of something that all of us need to think about in those moments of weakness. He says, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What's he saying here? He says, no one is beating you up. No one is attacking your home. No one is confiscating your property. Nobody is seizing your children. And nobody is, is wounding you. Your life is not on the line. He says, you've not yet resisted on the blood. He says, so why would you throw in the towel? Why would you give up so easily? He says there's a war on and the cause of Christ needs, needs soldiers. He says there's a marathon and the race needs runners. He says there's a harvest, but the church needs some farmers. He says there is life eternal and men need the Lord. He says, won't you just stick it out for that very truth that men need the Lord? Look at verse 10 of 2 Timothy in chapter, <laughs> chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, therefore... And you're all things for the elect's sake. Now the elect there are not saved. You say, how do you know that? Because it says that they may obtain salvation. <laughs> the elect there is unsaved Israel. Why does he say, I'm enduring all things for the elect's sake? Well, think about it. Who got him into this pickle? Who was it that made him end up in a, in a Roman cell? Who was it that drove him uh, to the Roman authorities in Jerusalem to begin with? Who was it that came down to testify against him? It was the Jews. It was the elect people. It was the people chosen of God. And so Paul says, because of those Jewish people, because of the fact that they need the Savior, I endure this stuff. And I do it because Jesus loves them and because Jesus loves me. He says, endure, Timothy. Endure. Stick at the job. That's Paul's message to his young apprentice. That's the word of God to us. Stick at it. Dig in. Don't give up. Never surrender. Keep going until you finally win the crown. 
You know, we began this morning with a boxing story, and I want to end with a boxing story. You'd think I was a very keen boxer, wouldn't you? I just got boxing stories. At the end of the 19th century, a boxer called Gentleman Jim Corbett held the heavyweight championship title for the world, and he had done so for five consecutive years. When someone asked him what the key to it was, he answered with these words, Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black, fight one more round. When you're so tired that you wish your opponent would crack you in the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Always remembering that the man who fights one more round is never whipped. He's always battling one more round. Hey, are you ready to go one more round for Jesus? Are you prepared to endure no matter what life brings? Let's do it. Let's stay on course. Let's keep to the track. The Lord is coming. And he's bringing his reward with him. He's bringing his crown when he comes. Let us then keep at it until Jesus comes. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning. We're going to sing our final hymn this morning.